Welcome to Tales from the First Tape. I'm your host, Rich Easton, located in beautiful Charleston, South Carolina. This episode is all about something near and dear to my heart. Practice. We're talking about practice. Not a game, not a game, not a game. We're talking about practice. When Allen Iverson hit the courts, you knew he meant business. I'm certain to get as good as he was, he had to spend countless hours on playgrounds, at Georgetown University, and with the 76ers, practicing his craft. He just didn't like the press up his ass about it. I mean, come on. You don't help a team get to the Elite Eight in college or become the number one draft pick, rookie of the year, and become an NBA All-Star without spending a lifetime practicing. So I don't blame his outburst. But this episode isn't about the so-called fake media or sports reporters like Jim Rome who like getting under players' skins. It's about practice. A well-known author, Malcolm Gladwell, in his book Outliers, claimed that the key to achieving world-class expertise in any skill is a matter of practicing the right way for a total of 10,000 hours. 10,000 hours. If you practiced one hour a day, it would take you 27 and a half years to practice 10,000 hours. Well, as well-researched as Malcolm is, I would just say this. It takes a shit ton of time to get great in anything. I mean, Tiger Woods didn't just happen to step up on the first tee box at the LA Open in 1992. I think he was still a teenager. Without spending his entire youth practicing with his father Earl looking over his shoulders. Two years after he entered the LA Open, he ended up going to Stanford University. And within two years, he won 10 collegiate events, concluding with the NCAA title. I mean, I can't imagine a day in his life ever since he was two years old where he didn't have a golf club in his hand, swinging and practicing and imagining that he was going to be a great champion. It's a known fact that Tiger Woods' fitness and practice routines rival those of the leading money winners on tour. As a matter of fact, I think he sets the pace. It's not uncommon that Tiger spends four and a half hours a day practicing a swing and in addition spends two hours working on cardio, flexibility, and strength conditioning. Even after eight surgeries on his knees and back, he finds a way to balance his fitness, his practice, and his parenting. So what does he have to show for it? Just 82 PGA wins, 15 majors, and over a billion George Washingtons. So you think practice is important to him? The famous cellist Yo-Yo Ma estimates that he practices 10,000 hours every five years. That's over 50,000 hours over his career. And for you math fans, that's five and a half hours a day for his lifetime. And I can't even imagine watching that much Netflix a day, particularly during this pandemic. To me, practice has always been a mantra in our family and I sucked it up like putting my mouth on a fire hose. The first day of junior high school, I get off the bus 
and I saw these upperclassmen. They must have been ninth graders carrying lacrosse sticks to school. Now, they look cool. They had this confident swagger, and that really impressed me. When I got home that evening, the dinner table is usually the place where we discussed our day. And I wanted to share with my parents my discovery at school that day and told them, God, this would be great if I could play. They shot me down immediately and said, look, the only thing you're going to be practicing is your homework, your homework, and your homework. And that's how you're going to get into college, and that's how you're going to be a doctor, and that's how you're going to be a lawyer. Well, I know that was important to them. But at 13 years old, that was the least of my worries. At that time, I was a skinny little kid who only started to care about two things, girls and not getting my ass kicked while pursuing them. So a few days later, and without the consent of my parents, I went to the athletic director and asked to borrow a school-issued lacrosse stick. He directed me to a barrel full of them, and I picked out the one that I thought fit my size. Or maybe it picked me. At first, I would hide this stick in my locker at school. But after a time, I decided I'd bring it home and at least convince my parents that I'd play around with it after I had studied. And they agreed. It stayed in my room so I could hold it and cradle it while doing homework. On weekends, I would play wall ball against the garage door and made a goal in my garage with two snow tires that I would hang in the back of the garage. It got to a point where I could whip the ball side-armed and underhanded and landed in either of the tires at will, without even looking sometimes. I would practice this overhand shot where I would bounce the ball in the garage and it would bounce up to the top tire. To me, This was something I thought that I could bring to the field. After a few months, my parents saw that I was taken to this sport. And when I asked them to try out for the junior high school team, they thought, why not? I was doing my studies. I was cradling my stick inside the house all over the place at night. And quite frankly, I think they just wanted to get me out of the house. So they let me try out for the team. I made the team and year after year, and our junior high school went from seventh to ninth grade. I started to get a little bit better. By the ninth grade, I was the high scorer, and at that time, it might have been one, maybe two goals a game. But I got good enough to give me confidence so that when I entered high school my 10th grade year, I could try out for the varsity team. And I thought, I'm good enough. I've practiced. I've got this shot. I could bounce it to the top corner. Let me at him. So my first day at practice trying out for the varsity team, I got creamed. I mean, it was probably the worst day. Now I'm playing with guys that are two, three years older than me. They're bigger, they're stronger, and they're just better at lacrosse. And I was a pipsqueak to them. So I didn't make the varsity team, but I made the junior varsity team. And the junior varsity team, every once in a while, was invited to come watch a scrimmage. Sometimes it was our varsity. Sometimes it was the local colleges in the area. We went to this local college scrimmage. And I was watching it, and there was this flashy standout player that wore white cleats, like Broadway Joe Namath, and also sported a white turtleneck, which looked so different, and it seemed odd to me, but it was just part of him standing out. He was so good that I remembered his last name was Frazier. And he whipped the ball underhanded and sidearmed like I'd never seen before. 
he would stand 30 yards from the goal, wind up, and have this shot that started down by his ankles and would whip up in the air over the goalie's shoulders and hit the top corners. I mean, this I'd never seen this before. We certainly didn't do that in junior high school. And our high school players were good, but not that good. And this really impressed me. It impressed me so much that I wanted to be like Frazier. So I get home and I start hitting the garage door and the rope tires again. Practice, practice, practice this underhanded shot. That was hard to do because if you try an underhanded shot and you've never done it before, the ball usually falls out of your net. But the more you practice, the more you get to feel it with your hands. It's very similar to golf practice. So now I was on a mission to create this shot that would not only score, but bring the fans to their feet, just like Frazier did. So years and years of practicing what I saw him do helped me develop a shot, something just like that. I mean, it got to a point when I was practicing in my garage, and typically I'd use a tennis ball so I wouldn't break anything, but I'd want to replace it with a lacrosse ball just so I could see what it felt like. I mean, it's a harder ball. It weighs more. So the shot's going to be a little different. I got to a point where I could whip that ball to the top corner where that tire was. It would go through the middle of the tire and pierce two levels of sheetrock protecting our garage from our dining room. I mean, so really, what does all that matter? Well, it certainly helped me build my confidence. I was a high scorer in high school, and it helped me catch the eye of the head coach at Union College in Schenectady, New York, enough for him to go to bat for me during the admission process. And during my freshman year, I got a chance to play in the biggest game of the year at Union College. We got a chance to play Syracuse University. Now, these guys were a few levels above Little Union College, a D3 school with a student body of less than 2,500 students. I had a fairly good season up to that game. Our upperclassmen had played together for three to four years and had honed their team skills as a group. They played together. They knew where they were on the field. And here I was, this little freshman, an outlier coming in to play with them. But I wasn't intimidated by age or size. The Syracuse team at that time had some players from the Onondaga Nation. These guys played lacrosse like guys from the hood played basketball. They were aggressive. They were great ball handlers. And they always looked for a chance to stick the butt of their sticks into my ribs. Little did they know that I had an older brother that would torture me, particularly when he made the wrestling team in high school and wanted to try out every single move on me until I yelled, Uncle! And even after that, sometimes he wouldn't stop. And that got me annoyed so much that when my back was on the ground and he was beating me up, something just kicked in. So as we got to the fourth quarter in the Syracuse game, we're down by three goals. There are maybe three to four minutes left in the game. And I had had just about enough of hood ball and decided to play my game. I happened to get the ball somewhere on midfield and started to charge the net on the other side. After a few bull dodges, I got within my range, the exact distance that I had from the swinging tires in my garage. And without looking at the goal, I whipped an underhanded shot above the goalie's head into the goal. 
The referees blew the whistle and my teammates and what seemed to be the entire student body at Union College went apeshit. That's all I needed for the rest of the game. I scored two more goals within two minutes to tie it up and it was probably the best lacrosse I had ever played in my life. Now I'd like to tell you that we went on to win the game, but even though that didn't happen, I learned an incredible lesson. And it was all that practice, all that time, shooting, putting holes in the back of the wall, having to spackle it before my dad got home, but picking up a ball and doing it again, it translates to something. You get better when you practice, you just do. So you can guess I'm a big fan of practice. The inner thoughts and the muscle memory during practice find their way to your game. So let's go back to the first tee. I've seen more golfers at the range during the pandemic than ever before. Free time is like a Cupid doll of the quarantine. I overheard one of our players saying that he already finished Netflix, so he might as well practice golf. Some, many, most people I know hate practice particularly golf practice. They avoid the range like it's Three Mile Island back in 1979. They get bored, or they just don't enjoy the absence of socializing that gets them playing the game, or maybe they just like the juice of betting when they play, and they don't do that when they're at the range. That being said, I'm noticing a lot more golfers at the range, particularly because of the pandemic. And the good news from that is I'm also seeing a lot better golf. I'm playing with guys that I've played with before that seem to be spending more time at the range. Their games are better. Their handicaps are lower. It's a thing. And I talk to people at the first tee, and some are surprised by the fact that they're playing better. And I'm just thinking, well, you're at the range more, and there seems to be a little less stress in your life. And you put those things together, and I think it could translate to better golf. So I think the good part is people are playing better golf. But with more people coming to the range, there's a lot more ambient noise. So what this basically means is there are a lot more people chatting it up. Maybe they're meeting at the range before they go play. Maybe they're just meeting at the range because it's something to do. But with all these new golfers at the range, there is also a lot more golf talk. So how do you handle it? For me... AirPods, headphones, whatever you need to do to get into your own space because you're not going to ask somebody to stop talking. I mean, maybe they haven't seen these people in a while and you could stare them down, but that's just an asshole move. So what I recommend is get some earbuds, get some headphones, listen to whatever music you want to listen to and let everybody come to the range and hit as many balls as they want. I mean, the more people that come, the better it is for the sport. I think it's funny sometimes how I could practice hitting balls at the range with ACDC blasting in my ears, but a conversation between two golfers two spots down the range from me can put me in apoplectic shock. I mean, am I the only one? I'd love to hear your stories about practice and how practice has translated to something good for you. And if you're talking golf, let me know how do you practice? How much time do you spend with your long irons and your drivers versus some of your chipping clubs, your short range clubs, 
your putter. A lot of the times when I go up to the range, I'll go over to the short game area and I'll see this gentleman, his name is Spencer, and he is a master chipper. I've never seen anybody so consistent at taking an eight iron and chipping it and having the ball roll to the hole like a putter. He and I were talking one day and he said, look, I like to use the club that gets it on the quickest so it rolls. He doesn't like using a 60 degree wedge or 56 degree wedge in the chance that what if he thins it? What if he hits it too hard? With an eight iron, he said he takes a putting stroke, gets the ball over the rough into the putting green and it gets to the hole quicker and closer. And I've watched him play with other friends there, and they have these games where you take one ball, you take it off the green, onto the rough, and the goal is to chip it on and finish putting into the hole with as few strokes as possible. And he told me this replicates the game much better than sitting there with 20 or 30 balls with a chipper in your hand and just trying to execute the chip. He said you've got to learn how to execute the shot that gets you closest to the hole so you could put it in next or put it in from the rough. And Spencer, I thank you for that because it's really helped my game. You've been listening to Tales from the First Tee. This is your host, Rich Easton from Charleston, South Carolina. If you enjoyed the podcast, give me a like. If you have any stories about practice, email them to rbeaston21 at gmail.com, rbeaston21 at gmail.com. Or send some of your crazy golf picks to my Instagram, Tales from the First Tee. I hope to hear from you soon.